right, really fitting that we uh, get the chance to communicate about that new partnership with Adam um, on the morning that we start a new series through the book of Philippians. Um, so we'll talk about that in just a minute, but I imagine that uh, Thanksgiving is probably, for most of you, not what it usually has been. Uh, it may have been harder being alone or being separated from family and friends uh, that you're usually able to spend the holiday with. Uh, but nevertheless, we all have so much to be thankful for. Uh, Pastor Tyler kicked us off, I think, on the right foot at the beginning of this past week, Thanksgiving week, uh, by so clearly and helpfully focusing our attention on the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. So remembering, rehearsing God's faithfulness and his love is such a helpful and fitting and needful discipline. So if you're in Christ, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, um, like Ephesians 1 says. And like Psalm 103, we need to say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And as the psalmist goes on, his soul is stirred up to bless and thank and praise the Lord. So let's allow thanksgiving to stir us for the rest of the year, um, for this week and beyond, to give thanks in all circumstances, training our souls to remember what we deserve. We deserve hell. And to remember that we are always doing way better than we deserve. So I also want to just take the opportunity to say how grateful I am for the privilege of being one of the pastors here at Bethel. Um, Beth and I are grateful to God for planting us here in Wilmington and here with you all, and we're grateful for all that God has taught us uh, through being a part of this church family. We're grateful for all the love and support and relationships and for the examples that we've seen in you uh, our brothers and sisters living out our values, gospel, community, and mission. Um, your examples have, in, have challenged us time after time, have encouraged us time after time. Uh, we're grateful for all of you, and we love you. So for this Advent season, which is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, so that starts this morning, um, for the, the season of Advent, we're going to be walking through the book of Philippians in four weeks. There's four chapters, so you figured it out, right? One chapter per week. Um, you guys are sharp. So those four Sundays, and then for Christmas Eve, we're going to circle back to chapter 2 and hit verses 5 to 8 on the humbling of the willing humiliation of our Lord Jesus Christ for us in that section uh, for Christmas Eve. So um, as I thought and prayed through a couple different options for Advent season, Philippians came to mind, and, and it's ultimately where I landed. And this book has rejoice in the Lord always at the center of it, at the heart of it. So that could actually sound tone deaf to the joys of 2000 or 2020, Right? Like, come on, that's unrealistic. Are you, are you serious? Or perhaps, instead, rejoice in the Lord always is exactly what we need for a year like 2020. I mean, Advent is all about good news of great joy, joy to the world. The Lord has come so that we can go and bring joy to the world. So, you know, ask yourself some questions here. Has, any, has anyone found joy 
easy in 2020? Okay, at least one person, that's good. So if you, if you want to be dismissed, that's fine. Um, the rest of us need this, I think. Um, no, I'm kidding, that's awesome. If, so what has been easy? What has come easy this year? And maybe most years. Um, sarcasm? Yes. You know, kindness? Maybe not so easy. Criticism? Comes pretty naturally. Encouragement? Not so much. Worry? Pretty easy. Fearless faith? Not so easy. How about irritability and impatience and annoyance? Does that come pretty naturally, pretty easy? What about patient forbearance and gracious magnanimity? Not so much. Anger, hate, harsh judgment. Not just on social media, but in here. What about benefit of the doubt and forgiveness and understanding? That's a little harder. Jealousy and self-pity. That comes pretty easily. Contentment and love is hard. Anxiety and stress and depression. It's natural. But joy and peace and buoyancy... That's supernatural. So we desperately need gracious resources that only God can give us through Jesus. Supernatural resources. We need the book of Philippians. It is filled with just those kinds of resources. So let's go after it this month, okay? We can actually change. We can grow. We don't have to just get carried along in like the cesspool current of 2020. We can grow. We can change. God is willing and able to help us. Philippians is small, but it is a mighty book. It can make us the kind of Christians God wants us to be, and it can make us the kind of Christians that the world needs to see. And wouldn't we shine that much brighter in the midst of times like this, right? So I actually encourage you to read it repeatedly through the month of December. If you've never done that before, there is, I tell you, there's no substitute for reading the same thing over and over again. And it's like that um, biology class, you know, where you're like looking at a fish and the teacher says, write 20, 20 observations down and everybody's like totally stressed out after about eight. Like, I don't know what else to say. But they keep staring and staring and then all of a sudden they, they come up with 50 by the time it's over. Same thing, just keep reading, keep reading and stuff will pop out I'd also encourage you to memorize a section in this book. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Okay, with Jesus at the heart, this beautiful hymn, 5 to 11, um, that is so central to the themes of the book. So, and, and you know what? If you struggle to memorize, whatever, just meditate on that section for the month of December, and I guarantee you won't regret it. So, with that, let's dive in. Um, We've got five points this morning, and the first one is a little bit of context, just the birth of this book. Where did this book come from? And uh, the book begins with a miracle, right? The miracle of God's grace in the life of a guy named Saul. So back in Acts 9, there's this Pharisee of Pharisees. He's a persecutor and a killer of Christians, and 
the Lord Jesus himself confronts him on the Damascus Road when he was going to, to drag more Christians into prison. And this guy became a Christian. Jesus saved him and made him a missionary to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. So Acts 16 comes along, and Paul is a missionary, you know, going all over the place. And he has this vision of a man from Macedonia, which is a region, calling out for Paul to come and help them. So Paul and his buddies head to Macedonia. And Philippi was a leading city in that region. It was a Roman colony that was established by Antony and Augustus, who later became Caesar Augustus, okay? Emperor Caesar Augustus. So Antony and Augustus established this city when they defeated Brutus and Cassius, okay? They were the assassins of Julius Caesar. And so they conquered um, and established this colony after the Battle of Philippi in 42 B.C., So this city was founded by Augustus as a Roman colony, and it was full of retired soldiers. This all actually has a lot to do with our passage this morning. It's not just kind of like the, you know, perfunctory, obligatory, introductory material that you kind of zone out on. It actually has something to do with understanding this, the book. So there was a lot of patriotic nationalism present in Philippi. It was a big deal that Philippi was a Roman colony. So by the time of Paul's writing, there had been a few Caesars since Augustus. Nero was the current Caesar on the throne. But that city still staunchly believed that Caesar is Lord. Okay? The imperial cult of Rome, where the Roman emperor was actually worshipped as a god began with Augustus and gradually developed and became more formalized over time. So literally, that's what they said. Caesar is Lord. So imagine Paul and Silas coming into town saying, Jesus is Lord. Okay? Which means, by the way, Caesar is not. So it was deeply subversive and offensive. The gospel of Jesus' lordship is subversive and offensive. But it's also the only true, like truly freeing and good news of our perfectly wise and benevolent Savior and King. Okay, so through the ministry of Paul, God first opened the heart of a woman named Lydia. Okay, she was a businesswoman, merchant, seller of purple cloth, She hears the gospel. God opens her heart to receive this gospel of Jesus, and she believes. And then remember, there was that slave girl that started following them around. She had this demonic spirit, and she used to do fortune-telling and made her masters lots of money. And Alex Kirk preached um, on this so helpfully back in October. So she's following them around, and Paul finally cast this spirit out of her, which meant that her owners lost a significant revenue stream And what do they do? They drag Paul and Silas before the magistrates and accuse them of disturbing the peace. They're beaten and thrown in prison. And then you know what happened as a result of being in prison. Paul and Silas, it's midnight, and what are they doing? You know, feet and hands in stocks, filthy prison, just horrible scenario. They probably were beaten naked, and their clothes are in tatters if they even have them. They can hardly sleep because the stocks made it really hard to sleep. And what are they doing? They're, you know, 
bemoaning infection and, you know. No, they're singing, singing praise to God at midnight. And there's this earthquake, and it led to the jailer becoming a Christian as well as his entire household. So Paul and Silas suffered, but they rejoiced in the Lord always, even in the midst of that suffering, and their suffering was not in vain. Through their work, God began a good work in that region, in that city of Philippi. So a businesswoman named Lydia, a slave girl set free from demonic oppression. Again, do we know if she joined the church? Not sure, but maybe. And certainly a jailer and his family. That was the birth of the church in Philippi. It's the beginning of the work of God in that city, growing into a faithful church, complete with overseers and deacons. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers, another term for elders, shepherds, and deacons. Okay? So Paul had seen God begin this work, and he was sure of it. He was also sure that he who began this good work would be faithful to complete it. Paul loved these people, loved the Philippians, and they loved him too. They loved him back. So let's look next at the relationship that Paul had with these Philippian believers. You got to see all this relational language. Adam read it. Just note the relational language and note why Paul has such a strong bond with these folks. Look at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer not as a mere duty, but with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, and actually Brett read some from chapter 4 that speaks of that partnership and how they put their money where their mouth was. So, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So he's sure of this. He's certain that the Philippians are the real deal. But this is not just a groundless confidence. It's based on the work of God in their lives that was evident their partnership, their fellowship, their koinonia. Maybe you've heard that term. That's, how, that's the Greek term. Their koinonia in the gospel was present from the beginning until the day that Paul was writing. So, you know, sometimes when we use the word fellowship here, it's translated as partnership, and in some translations it's fellowship. When we use the word fellowship in the church, we often mean conversation or hangout time with other Christians. Okay, so if you get together with your neighbor, to watch the Eagles game, it's a, watch, a football watch party, you know? If you get together with church friends to watch the Eagles game, it's fellowship. So there's nothing wrong with watching the Eagles game with church friends. I mean, go, you know, fly. Eagles fly. Um, not flying so well this year. Nothing wrong with watching the Eagles game with church friends, but fellowship, koinonia, means a lot more than that. The term actually had commercial overtones. Okay, it's actually used in Luke 5 of James and John who were partners. Same root word. Partners with Simon in their fishing business. So they threw in their resources together for a shared purpose, shared vision. So fellowship or partnership, koinonia, is sharing the same vision, rolling up your sleeves together to get involved 
in the in a Christian context for the advance of the gospel. And certainly the Philippians had done that with Paul. So the good news of Jesus and the advance of his kingdom is our shared vision. And we go all in together to push it forward. Jesus has got our heart. He's our first thing. He's our central thing. And his mission then gets our devotion and commitment. We put our money where our mouth is. And so together we pool our time and energy and resources and talents And we can, for instance, support the people that Brett listed off, and we can do lots of other things as well. So Paul was so close to these Philippians because they both shared this heart and commitment from the first day until the present. So I read this article about a year and a half ago titled The Big Business of Loneliness. Co-working spaces, friendship apps, and adult dorms are selling human connection. Okay, it's a really interesting article, so listen to a little bit of it here. I think we have, you can follow along as I read. So this guy Smith, I can't remember his first name, is the CEO and co-founder of Tribe, a co-living space with seven locations in Brooklyn whose motto is, we help you make friends. According to Smith, the product really is the people. The goal is to provide residents, many of whom are recent transplants of the city, with a pre-made social fabric. This sad, cyclical existence, room, office, room again, was Emily's experience when she moved to San Francisco after college. Quiet but not shy, she worked with a very small team and didn't connect with her Craigslist roommates. A year passed without her making a single close friend. It was awful, she says. Emily's experience is far from unusual. Loneliness is pervasive, particularly among younger people. We're moving across the country, ripping ourselves away from social networks that can take years to construct. We're delaying marriage and kids or skipping them entirely. We're working all the time, often alone, outside the confines of a traditional office and without the camaraderie of coworkers. Capitalism abhors a vacuum. And into this collective Social void has stepped a fleet of companies and entrepreneurs selling an end to social isolation. Over the past decade, on-demand connection has become both a big business and a powerful marketing opportunity. From co-living apartments to co-working spaces to apps that help facilitate human connection, there is a lot of investment and infrastructure being built around services that help humans bond with other humans. What can be done to help the chronically lonely? It likely won't be a company whose primary goal is to generate revenue for investors by collecting user data. In other words, social media. Or charging a premium for services such as workplaces and apartments. Chronic loneliness is a difficult nut to crack. It's obviously a secular article. So what conclusion do they come to? But there's some evidence that homing in on a mission or purpose larger than oneself, which often requires working with others, can help isolated individuals successfully integrate back into the social fold. A community is a community in large part because its members, even the ones who don't always get along, hey, that's good news for the church. You guys tracking? (laughs) It's not always so easy to get along. Okay, but we have something bigger that's bringing us together. A community is a community in large part because its members are actively striving towards something greater, which benefits the group as a whole. Isn't that amazing? 
The truth of God is so stamped on our souls. We can try to find koinonia, and we're all wired for it and longing for it. And where you find it is oftentimes when people go in together, all in together for something that's bigger than themselves. Which is why, for instance, Green Beret guys, guys that like live and risk their lives, lay their lives down for one another, with one another, are oftentimes bonded for the rest of their lives. But all of that is an echo of what we're really wired for. The church and the mission of God in this world. So that's why we talk about partnership with the folks that we support. And Brett said it beautifully. Whether it's around the globe or in the backyard, we are locking arms and going in together for the advance of the gospel in those places. You know, France and all, all, all these other places. Why I read those encouraging updates from the Campbells and the Marshalls last Sunday. Because what God is doing there, we have a part in. We have this joy of hearing what God is doing, and he's using us to help them get that done. And it's not just out there. It's what we're doing this morning by partnering with Adam and the Green Project or Epiphany's work in the city. Or it's why we prayed regularly for Diane and Beryl and Mike and Bonnie when they were doing that Bible study at Forward Manor. We're partnering with them in that gospel advance effort. It's what we do when we send texts to our community group to pray for gospel conversations with coworkers or family members or neighbors or friends. It's what we do when we jump in with Angel Tree, which is awesome. We're partnering with Angel Tree, with Prison Fellowship, thankful for Chelsea's work there to coordinate this for the sake of the gospel, to love needy children and families with the love of Jesus. So let's keep going with it, Bethel. Like, let's look for more opportunities. So we brought on Adam Kramer. Awesome. Who's next? Like, let's pray for new and worthy partners so that we can get in on more of what God is doing here and around the world. Also, have you, have you ever been on a missions trip with people or been involved in some ministry or project where you just like poured heart and soul into it with others and you ended up closer with those folks than you are with a lot of Christians you've known for a long time, but maybe you've never really done anything meaningful, like meaningful gospel ministry with them. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. So maybe we need to think through that dynamic as we think about our community groups, your community group. Some of our community groups have done this very thing, you know, like the way that the Saunders community group supported and got behind that ministry at Forwood. How could we serve together, get involved in something together? How can we do that as a church in 2021? Let's pray and think and share ideas and light some fires in 2021. All right, so even though partnership overtones, uh, partnership overtones are strong with this concept of of, um, you know, commercial, like put your money in to, to get something done, and this concept of, of koinonia, that doesn't mean the relationship was merely a business one or a transactional one. It was warm, really warm and loving between Paul and the Philippians. In fact, 
Isn't it true that the strongest and deepest relationships are ones that are founded on and centered on the most worthy shared vision and purpose? So let's look at how Paul continues to talk about his relationship with the Philippians. Look at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. To feel this way about you all. Why? Because I've got you in my heart. I hold you in my heart. Why? Because you all are partakers with me of grace. How do you know that? Because both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, when I was in chains and when I was out sharing the gospel, you were with me. You were locking arms with me, partnering with me. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Which, don't miss this. You know what that means? If you're a Christian, Christ Jesus has affection for you. He doesn't just barely put up with you. He loves you. <laughs> he, he yearns for relationship with us. It's crazy, isn't it? So Paul's heart is like Christ's heart, and so he has that heart for the Philippians, Christ's people. So all this relational language, Paul thanks God in all of his remembrance of them. He's always praying with joy. He's sure that they're the real thing. He holds them in his heart. He yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. You can see why Paul is so certain. He's sure that God's begun this good work. It wasn't a groundless confidence. It was based on the work of God in their lives that was evident. Is it evident in us? Is it evident in your life? I was reminded of a quote that's kind of in my funerals file. It's by J.C. Ryle. It goes like this. When we have carried you to your narrow bed, let us not have to hunt up stray words and scraps of religion in order to make out that you were a true believer. Let us not have to say in a hesitating way one to another, I trust he is happy he talked so nicely one day and he seemed so pleased with a chapter in the Bible on, on another occasion and he liked such a person who was a good man. Let us be able to speak decidedly as to your condition. Let us have some solid proof of your repentance, your faith, and your holiness so that none shall be able for a moment to question your state. So Paul was sure of them. They were the real deal. But that doesn't mean they can just coast. He wants them to grow. They need to grow. We all do. We never arrive, right? So he goes from praying with thankfulness and joy to praying for abounding and wise love. Look at point number three, the prayer in verses 9 to 11. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What's going on here? Well, we'll see how this prayer is key to the themes of this book as we walk through it. So we'll come back to it. But I'll just point out one thing this morning, which will kind of lead us right into a point number four, which is perspective. So think about this. Paul's writing from prison, right? Most likely in Rome. 
The Philippians love Paul. He's their spiritual father. It rightly concerns them that Paul's in prison. Prisons were not very hospitable places. It was rough. Food wasn't guaranteed. You had to rely on other people to bring you what you needed to survive. You can imagine the filth and the infection that was rampant. So they are likely upset that Paul is in prison again. It's because they loved Paul, right? It's love. Paul wanted them to know that prison wasn't stealing his joy. His joy was in the Lord. So it was out of reach of prison guards and chains. And imprisonment led to prison ministry. (laughs) The advance of the gospel. That's what they were partnering in from the beginning. So not only do they need to know that he's okay, that he's rejoicing, they should rejoice with him. That's what he wants them to do. So what they needed was for their love to abound with knowledge and all discernment so that Paul's safety wasn't their primary concern. It wasn't Paul's primary concern. The advance of the gospel was Paul's primary concern, and he wanted that to be their primary concern. And you know what? They, at the end of this chapter, we see it, they were experiencing some of the same sufferings that Paul had. So they were going to need this perspective for their own sufferings. They needed their love to abound and be informed with gospel discernment so that their safety and comfort wasn't paramount, but that the gospel was paramount. Do you see how we need our love to abound and we need it to be wise love in order to discern what's best, what's excellent? And that abounding wise love leads to purity of life and the fruit of righteousness and all of that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. It's all through Jesus. He, what did he do? He loved us with this self-sacrificial, gospel-centered love, laying down his comfort and safety for our eternal good, and then our love can abound so that we can willingly lay down our lives for the good of others so that our lives abounds with fruit. Now, you can imagine this letter being read to the Philippians and they're understandably unsettled by the news of Paul being in prison and suffering, you know, possible execution looming. You can imagine somebody wondering, like, why doesn't God free him, you know? Couldn't he do more if he was free? Why won't God hear and answer our prayers? And like I said, they want they hear that he's rejoicing in this letter and he wants them to rejoice. And so this quiet falls over the group and then imagine the Philippian jailer standing up and speaking. And he says, you know, brothers and sisters, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for the beating and imprisonment of Paul and Silas. Look at what God did in my life and and in the life of my family. Because of Paul's suffering and because of his perspective and Silas, they're singing in my prison. Maybe God wants to do the same thing in the life of some of those soldiers in the imperial guard. Perhaps we should stop now and pray for them. Do you see how if their love abounded with discernment, 
they would know what's best. There's something more important than Paul's safety right now. The eternal safety of some of those guards that Paul was with. When love is the controlling motivation, it shifts your perspective. What previously looked like an obstacle can start to look like an opportunity. So we may just want to examine our prayers. What are we praying for most often? Safety? Or the advance of the gospel? just so easy to like shrink back from the most important things like so I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna say this this is like such a small example but we live in such small little moments right so this is just applicable to me I'm convicted to this so there's a guy that I've been reaching out to for a couple years now I'm still like Lord please save this kid and we recently met up again for coffee and it was great talked a lot about the gospel I'm still praying for the Lord to save him and I've been feeling like I need to just reset everything. I'm too distracted. My attention span's getting shorter. What's wrong with me? You know, like, um, is anybody else feeling that way in the midst of pandemic? And, you know, like, I need to reset and discipline and cut out this stuff and more reading and more prayer and more thought like that, you know. And, and I started thinking on prayer walk last night, you know, um, I'm going to do this and in the morning and this and I'm going to these out. And, I'm, and then he texted me last night late and he's like, can we meet up soon? Like, I need some advice. And what did I do? <sighs> it's going to be, like, I had, I had I'm going to get started on the right foot for Monday. You know, like, I'm going to start this week right. Like, are you kidding me? This guy needs Jesus. Like, what if this is the morning that God would just work in his heart? Like, and I'm worried about my stupid schedule. Like, lay it down for the sake of the gospel. So we need our perspective changed. I need my love to abound. Like, oh, great. You want to get together? Great. You need Jesus, and I am praying that you'll find him. Okay, so Philippians is here to change our perspective. So just listen to these verses, point number four, and just let Paul minister to you and God by his spirit change your perspective because this is not too American. This is like... I don't know, this isn't normal, but this is the kind of Christianity we need to embody. I want you to know, brothers, what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You'd think that it would be a demotivator, but instead people see Paul rejoicing oh, to live as Christ and die as gain. You're right. And they get more bold and take more risks. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, love abounding, that prayer, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. This isn't a, a loss or a defeat that Paul's in prison. Oh, no. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. That's what he cared about. That's Priority one for Paul. And in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Do you think he means here, I'm going to get out of prison? Wait, read the context. 
as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored, magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. If God chooses to deliver me by releasing me from prison, great. If God chooses to deliver me by executing me and bringing me home, great. Anybody want that perspective? Like, how free would you be if that's where you're at? For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Oh, God, please make us that kind of Christian. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, depart and be with Christ, for that's, very, that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He's considering others' interests above his own. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. That's why he's on planet Earth. I am, I am a worker for joy. Who can I help find more joy in Jesus and grow in faith? Like, do you think we need some of this perspective? Like, come on, give me some of that grace, some of that perspective. So their perspective had already changed. I mean, just the fact that they weren't ashamed of Paul was a big deal because imprisonment carried stigma, especially in a Roman colony, you know? And they're like locking arms with the guy that said, Jesus is Lord, Caesar's not Lord. So they could have turned their backs on him and been ashamed when he was put in prison. So it had changed, but it needed to change more. They needed to be more concerned about gospel advance than the safety and comfort of their spiritual father. So he wanted them to see his imprisonment differently. Gospel advancing through suffering was a reason for joy. Sometimes steps backward or really steps forward in God's kingdom. As long as Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice. So, oh man. Um, so, this guy, VOM, is a regular source of perspective for me. Voice of the Martyrs. So uh, not long ago, I read of Zhang Ronglang. I don't know how to say his name. He was one of the most prominent house church leaders in China who was sentenced in 2006 to seven and a half years in prison for using an illegal passport. But even as Christians pressured communist leaders to release him, he was building a ministry inside the prison. I am happy that you and others tried to arrange for my release, but in one way, I'm happy that you failed. He told a VON contact, you almost made a big mistake. If you'd been successful, there would be no church in that prison today. After his release on August 31, he immediately admitted to a hospital 15 days. Doctor treated him. Though in prison, the utter freedom of his freedom betrays our slavery and shames us. Lord, grant us such freedom in Christ that we will be happy for failures or unanswered prayers that serve providential plans for freedom. So, Again, we need perspective. Lord, give us that perspective. Cause our love to abound with all knowledge and discernment so that we know what's best based on the advance of the gospel and the supremacy of Christ. So the main exhortation of this book <laughs> is 1, 27 to 30. Okay, This is like the governing exhortation only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you if that happens or I'm absent I may hear of you that you are standing firm 
in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You hear the same themes? And not frightened in anything by your opponents. I mean, if they take Paul's example, he's, you know, to live as Christ, to die is gain. How do you scare that guy? <laughs> this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you, this is perspective, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, it's granted to you to believe in him. Faith is a gift. By grace, through faith in Jesus, we come to Christ. We become Christians. But also, it's granted to you to suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, maybe we'll pick up with this a little bit at the beginning of next week because um, there's plenty more to say here. But Paul is basically saying, hey, Philippians, I am calling you to your civic duty. Joyful civic duty. I am calling you to be a patriot of your true patria. A patria is your fatherland, your homeland. So chapter 3 says that their citizenship is in heaven. So this is a call to be patriots of their heavenly homeland. What is a patriot? A patriot is someone who loves and is devoted to and defends and supports their country. So we are, first and foremost, citizens of heaven. So we should, maybe this is not obvious because the verb is like kind of masked with the translation. Let your manner of life is literally um, politusthe, okay? So politumai, we get politics from that, you get it? So it's like literally speaking of kind of doing your civic duty, and it's as a citizen of heaven. The church is like an embassy of heaven, a little heaven on earth. We are ambassadors. This is the soil of heaven dropped down onto earth, the city of man. Christians are ambassadors of heaven. We've got a peace treaty to offer the world. So the main exhortation of this book is to live lives worthy of the gospel, standing firm, united, and fearless for the gospel, citizens of the city of God, the heavenly fatherland, bringing a little heaven to earth because Jesus brought heaven to earth to us. So we are citizens. That is first an identity, and it comes with obligations. The heart of Christ leads to the work of Christ. The heart of God leads to the work of Christ. This glorious good news of grace, where we become partakers of that grace, saved by his grace, which leads to the renewal of our hearts and now our desire to work for Christ and live lives that reflect the worth of Christ and live for the advancement of the gospel, the glory of God and the good of others is what we're all about. So, Let's pray that our love would abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that we spend our lives on what really matters and the Lord shines light on what that path looks like for each of us. Let's pray.
Father, I do pray that you would, by your steadfast, sacrificial love that is embodied in our incarnate, suffering, dying, rising Savior, by your steadfast love that endures forever, would you cause our love to abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment so that we know how to spend our lives well, conducting ourselves in a manner that just shouts out the worth of the gospel of Jesus. In his name, amen.